Andrew and Elizabeth for serving us so well. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. It is possible that we will actually make it out of 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Not probable, but possible. Last week we had focused on one main theme in this text. As we close out the end of, come to the end of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 25, 22 through 25, there is one main theme. That is, remember, it is to love one another. He says, love one another earnestly. In 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25, that one main verb sticks out and identifies the, the thought for us, identifies the main theme, love one another. Now that word agape is a very specific word. It's a very pointed word. We found out last week it's, it's not the love of emotion or the love of feeling. It is the love of the will. It's often referred to, you've heard it before, as agape is, is unconditional love. It is the strongest sense of love. It is love of the will. Uh, this is love, as we said last week, if I want to If I want to try to define this word, agape, I would say it is is affectionately cherishing one another. It is affectionately cherishing one another in the sense that we are actually moving toward another to seek the good of another, no matter the cost to oneself. And that was the focus last week, the main theme, the main verb, love one another. And we said, look, that's a command. It is a command. Look with me at the text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We found last week that there was the command. The command is love one another. Love one another. How? Love one another earnestly. But then there was what we referred to last week as the capacitation. Not just the command, but the capacitation. The capacity. And here's a key point, and I think we need to mark it very well, so much so that I want to come back to it and and get a running start into where I want to go this morning. The capacity for this kind of love is not something that you or I have by nature. You do not have, I do not have, it, it is not my natural inclination for this kind of love, this, this agape, this, 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 this sacrificial, uh, no matter the cost of self, moving toward another, ch- affectionately cherishing another. It is not your natural inclination. And I point that out because he says here in verse 22, you purified your soul. In other words, something had to happen in order for this to take place. You purified your soul by obeying the truth. Now the question we want to ask is, well, what is the truth? Now, 
I don't want to belabor this, but throughout the Scripture, we find that the truth that Peter's talking about here is the truth about Jesus Christ, or we might call it the gospel. It's used like this all throughout the New Testament. Remember I said last week, it's, it's not when you come to faith in Christ, it's not that you ask Jesus into your heart, but it's much more the idea that you obey the truth of the gospel. You obey the truth, and he says, you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. The truth is that Jesus is the Savior, but that's only part of the truth. Yes, Jesus is the Savior, but that's only part. The other part of the truth is, and you need a Savior. Why? Not because you are a bit lacking. Not because you've kind of gotten off track. No, friend, listen. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. And, and I, I don't want to say this in, a, in a, an off-the-cuff or, or a, a offensive way, but you and I need a Savior because, truthfully, we are worms in the sight of God. We are sinful scoundrels polluted with the deep moral stains of our sinful condition. All right? That's what makes the fact that God loves us so astounding. It's not astounding that God loves lovable people. It's astounding that He loves completely unlovable people. Right? He's not loving someone who's lovable. He's loving complete and utter delinquents. I remember there was a man who I invited to church here on occasion. And uh, I invited him and he said, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not coming there again. I said, why? He said, because when I walk in there I, and I, when I leave, he said, I end up feeling worse when I went, when I, than when I came in. And I suppose that's why. Because you hear things like, we are complete and utter delinquents. And I'm not just talking about the most wicked among us. I'm talking about all of us. Kids, I want you to think about that. I'm talking about all of us. Do you understand that you're born with a sin nature? Do you understand that no one had to teach you how to sin? You just knew how to lie all of a sudden. Nobody had to teach you how to lie. You just know how to lie. You... Nobody had to teach you how to be hateful to one another. Nobody had to teach you how to be selfish. Isn't that amazing? You are really good, kids, at being selfish. How did you learn to do that? Well, just natural. You don't need to wait until you're older to be able to to express your sinfulness to a greater degree. All you need to understand is what God says, and you hear it and obey it, right? Right? That means to submit yourself to it, to submit yourself to God's assessment that you and I are desperate sinners in need of grace, in need of unmerited favor. I think, brothers and sisters, that we might have believed a lie of Satan. I just want to call attention to it this morning. I think we might have bought into the lie that says that what we most need today is self-esteem. Ah, What we need is to feel good about ourselves. And the way that I can feel best about myself is if you tell me that I'm sufficient. 
that I'm enough, that I'm adequate. And that is exactly, brothers and sisters, what I think is holding so many in prison today. You see, you don't need to feel good about yourself. If I can say it this way, you need to feel good about God. Some think that, the, 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 that they have to be enough in and of themselves, which would then make you worthy of being loved. But the gospel says the exact opposite. The gospel says that God loves unworthy sinners because that's his nature. The gospel says that God loves the, ready for this, ungodly. Completely independent of man, God loves So, when you obeyed the truth, that truth, when you obeyed the truth, not only that Jesus is the Savior, but that you need a Savior, he says you you were purified for something. What is that? You were purified, and we said this this is morally. The deep stains of sin... The contamination of your soul, the polluted soul that you have by nature, is purified like a priest was purified for priestly service. And in this case, the priestly service involves sincere brotherly love. Notice what he says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for or unto, into a sincere brotherly love. Love, when you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were purified for the sake of a brotherly love. You were brought into a new family and given brothers and sisters, and that's exactly what happened. Now, I said last week, that's what we might call the human side of it. But there's a divine side. You see, according to this text, I would say that there is a reason that one obeys the gospel. And that is, so that is that they have been born again. So let me just remind you, being born again is not a decision. It is the gracious action of God to breathe spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner because we are born with a sin nature. That means... That our will is bent on sin. Or we could say a will that is bound in sin. It is not a freed will. It is a bound will. So one, you don't become a sinner by sinning. Now think about that. You don't become a sinner by sinning, but rather you sin. Why? Because you're a sinner. You don't decide to become a sinner. You actually have no choice in the matter. It's just your nature. Sin flows very naturally out of your heart, out of your what? Your nature. So from man's perspective, you heard the truth and you obey it, and you must. There's no purification when a man or woman doesn't hear the truth and and obey the truth. No man comes to Christ apart from their will. But from God's perspective, something has to happen first. It has to. Why? 
Because the will of the sinner is naturally inclined to sin. The will is bound in sin. So what happens? What has to happen? The new birth. Or in theological terms, regeneration. Well, how does the new birth take place? How does regeneration take place? Well, that's key for our understanding of this text. He says, verse 23, since... Notice the, the, the root cause here. Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. We're not talking about fleshly born again. We're not talking about, remember Nicodemus didn't understand this. He was like, when Jesus said, you've you got to be born again. And he says, well, do I have to, how do I get back into my mother's womb? I, 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 this, this is completely not translating to me. What do you mean? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about fleshly. He says the, the flesh gives birth to flesh, but I'm talking about spiritual rebirth. How does regeneration take place? It takes place through the imperishable seed. What do you mean? Well, Jesus says the seed that is the source of this regeneration, the seed that is the source of this new birth is what? The word of God. Listen to some scriptures. James 1.18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. John 1. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 13, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The new birth is rooted, grounded in the living and abiding Word of God. So it is, it is the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and applying it to the heart of the sinner, and the sinner is changed. Not unlike that Old Testament prophet Ezekiel going into the valley of dry bones and saying to the dry bones, beginning to prophesy, and all of a sudden the dry bones do what? They live. It's like the, the hymn writer said, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. Now think about what Peter's saying. It is through obedience to the truth that one is capacitated for brotherly love. And it is through the word of God that one is enabled even to obey as the very foundation for this kind of love toward one another. And that's the command. Love one another. If you're Christian, this is imperative. You were saved for love. Most of time we say you were saved by love, but the scripture here tells us you were saved for love. And that's why we said last week in no uncertain terms that the world is an unloving place and people. The world is a place and people ruled by their own ignorant lusts and selfish passion. And so were you and I. Verse 1, verse 14 of chapter 1. 
that the kind of love that Peter is calling us to here is not a normal human attribute. It is, in fact, a specifically Christian quality, particularly made possible only by the new birth. In other words, there must be something so radical that happens in order for you and I to affectionately cherish one another in such a way that we move toward one another desiring only their good. And that radical change is not only an inner purification, a moral purification from past sin, but an entirely new spiritual life that we hadn't had before. The radical change is an inner purification or cleansing from your moral impurity, which is yours by nature and happens as you obey the truth of the gospel. And such obedience comes as a result of a new birth rooted in the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the agent. Word of God is the means to bring about this regeneration. So let me try to bring this all together. I believe that nothing will make you love God more than when you see your utter inadequacy and your ungodliness and your wretchedness. And then you understand that God, in spite of your ungodliness and in spite of your wretchedness, God set His love on you. That's amazing. That just blows my mind that in spite of our sin, our wretchedness, that God would set His love on us. So I believe that nothing will help you to love God like understanding your moral wretchedness before God. But I also believe that nothing will free you to love another brother or sister like understanding that you are equal, equally wretched today. You you could look to a person beside you and you could tell them, you are as wretched as I am. Thank you, Ann, for applying that. I heard, I'm sorry. Yeah. We are all equally sinners. Nobody in here comes and is just a little bit better. We are all, and I keep using this word, wretched. We are all equal worms before God. Morally stained before God. Utterly inadequate before God. We are all that way. And nothing will great grant you such love for one another like recognizing that we are all equal in our sin and all equally loved by a gracious, free, unmerited God. We are gathered together this morning basking in the free, unmerited, undeserved, unhindered love of our Heavenly Father. Equally. (laughs) Which not only empowers us, enables us to love Him, 
but it serves as the impetus for us to radically love one another with agape. That looks different. The world doesn't have this. No unredeemed, unregenerate person has this. That's why Jesus said, when the world sees your love for each other, they will know that you are my disciples. Greatest witness, greatest testimony we have is our affectionately cherishing one another such that we move in the direction of another, living out for them, no matter bearing the cost on ourselves. We have that command to love one another earnestly. So what, what we learn from 1 Peter 1, 22-25 is that loving one another is a command for the Christian, not a suggestion or even a strong opinion. It is an absolute necessity rooted in our spirit-led obedience to the truth of the Word of God, which leads us dun, 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 to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. So, stop right there. Therefore, everything that comes here in chapter 2 is rooted in what we just understood. Understand? Everything. So, therefore. Now, so. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The way that the first two verses read something like this. Having laid aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Having laid it aside, lay it aside. Long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow by it up into salvation. You can see that Peter is still speaking in terms of earnest love for one another. He's still got this thought about loving one another as being necessity, uh, uh, necessary because of the new birth. He has that in his mind. So he writes, you have been born again, therefore you must grow up into this salvation. You must grow spiritually. That's what he's talking about. You must mature spiritually. And in order for that to happen, you must desire or crave that which is spiritually nourishing. Like a baby desires or craves his mother's milk, you must crave for that which is spiritually nourishing. Now here's my question. And, and, and I'm going to ask this and then answer it and then be done in 10 pages. I have a question. What does earnest love for another brother or sister in Christ have to do with growing up spiritually, maturing spiritually? What would be the natural segue for Peter to go from speaking about the new birth, being grounded in the living and abiding word of God as the basis for your love for one another, and this text with this command, long that's the main command. That's the main verb. That, that what he says, put, us, put away, that's not the verb. That's, that's actually a participle. It's a description. The verb is, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Whenever I'm preparing a sermon, I try to imagine somebody pushing back on something that I'm saying. And when I was considering this, I imagine a person who 
who may not be affectionately cherishing other believers. And I imagine this person saying to me, look, Joe, I don't have a problem with anyone. I just like to stay in my lane. They're over there. I'm over here just doing my thing. I don't dislike anyone, Joe. I'm just living my life and I'm going to let them live their life. I don't do relationships very well. I'm introverted. And besides that, I've been to church before and I've been burned on a number of occasions. Look, if somebody asks me to help, I'll help. But I'm not going to willfully move toward others. And if that would be you, if you're that kind of person, I wonder how this text sits with you. And you might be very happy to see this chapter division between the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. But I reminded, as I reminded you last week, that's not part of the inspired text. You can't build a wall between verse 25 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. There's a reason that Peter can move from the command to love one another earnestly in chapter 1, verse 22, and the command to long for pure spiritual milk by which you will grow up into salvation in chapter 2, verse 2. And as I have looked at this text, I have concluded that the link is this. When you are not earnestly loving one another, your spiritual nourishment is hindered. Your spiritual growth is hampered. There are certain attitudes. There are certain uh, actions. There are certain habits which are common to us. That if we don't pay attention to them. And recognize them and deal with them. We will be spiritually malnourished. We're going to be filling our hearts, our souls with things which, are, which look to be nourishing but are actually not nourishing. I think it was in 2008, there was something called the Chinese milk scandal. They were taking powdered milk and adding something to it. I think it was called melamine or melamine. And what it did was when that powdered milk was unpowdered, when it was fed to the babies, it made it look like it had a whole lot more, a higher protein level than regular milk. And so they were like, well, let's feed our babies this and they'll get more protein. But the problem was it was actually killing them. And so many people are like that when it comes spiritually. We're taking that which in us, which is not really nourishing and actually hindering our growth. So what kind of things would hinder our spiritual growth? What kind of things would hinder spiritual nourishment and keep us from growing up into salvation, from being mature Christians? You know what it is? He mentions five categories. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, Envy and slander. There's a, John MacArthur said there's a flow to these five. General evil leads to deceit because you need to be deceptive about your true character. Deceit leads to hypocrisy. You need to put on a good front. Hypocrisy manifests itself in envy of those who are genuine and ultimately leads to their slander. Certainly this is the absolute opposite of what we're called to back in chapter 1 verse 22. 
Peter says to strip off these things. And, and it's amazing. He says, in one way you have done this by virtue of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This has already happened. But in another way, he says, make it happen. You, by virtue of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you have stripped yourself of these things. Now you also must strip yourself of these things. These are the things that will keep you from growing spiritually. The, the, the point is this. The reason that this is such a big deal about loving one another earnestly is because when you don't, you end up becoming spiritually anemic. And the church, Christians, become weak. And they don't grow. So not only do you have to recognize what God has done by virtue of the new birth, but you have to give an honest self-assessment. You have to assess yourself and look for the presence of these things and rid yourself of them so that you can grow spiritually. I'm thinking about what Peter said to to husbands in chapter 3. Look over at chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers not be hindered. It's possible for your prayers as a leader in the home, men, to be hindered on the basis of the way that you think of and treat your wife. I think that's similar to what he's saying here in chapter 2. Where there is the presence of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, those things are actually hindering, hampering, preventing you from receiving proper spiritual nourishment from that which is really spiritually nourishing. We'll find out what that is next week. And will keep you from growing spiritually. Let's look at these things. Malice. It's a word for general evil and wickedness. It's referring to a mind that is just filled with wickedness. It's, it, it's the evil habits, habits of the mind. Just It's sitting around thinking about that which is evil. Whether it's entertaining yourself with it by something you're watching or reading, just filling your mind with general evil and wickedness. It could be crude, crass jokes or dwelling on that which is evil and and then playing it out in your mind. Rid yourself, he says, of, of malice, maliciousness. Rid yourself of it. We'll talk about how to do that in just a minute. Deceit is the next one. That's, that's false trickery. It means, the, the actual word means to bait someone. So you're baiting someone into believing something or acting on something which is not true. Hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy is that word that speaks of putting on a mask. It is creating a false impression or outward show which masks inward evil. Pretending to be something on the outside that you are not on the inside. Rid yourself of of hypocrisy. Rid yourself, he says, of envy. Envy, you know what that is. It is the opposite of thankfulness for the good that others enjoy. It's seeing someone else enjoying some blessing and not just wanting it to for yourself, that'd be covetousness, but envy is, is hating them because they have that blessing that you ought to have. Slander. Slander is harmful speech which speaks evil of another status, another's status. This isn't just gossip, but it is defaming one another. You think evil in your heart toward one another, and then you use words to paint the picture of that person in the worst possible sense. Now, here's the question. Well, here's a statement first. Where these things are present in your life, you can be sure. God says you can be sure that you are going to be wanting of spiritual nourishment. Some of you are dealing with such great spiritual immaturity. You, you are dealing with things like lack of assurance of faith. You're dealing with, with uh, joylessness in the Christian life because you are harboring and fostering these things. The reason you are not spiritually flourishing is because you're harboring these things. Wherever forms of these things show up in your life, he says, and, and he uses the word for take, like, like you take off the jacket, right? Strip them off, rid yourself of them. In other words, look for malice, look for deceit, look for hypocrisy, look for envy, look for slander, and undress it, take it off. Renounce it as spiritually detrimental, not just to yourself, but renounce it as spiritually detrimental to someone else. And confess that before the Lord. Bring it out in the open to Him. Bring it out in the open to to brothers and sisters in Christ. Deal harshly with those things. Some of you have been harboring these things against your husband, against your wife. Some of you have been harboring these things against another brother or sister in Christ, holding on to them, filling your mind with these things. And that, Peter says, is the cause of you not flourishing spiritually. So look for malice, look for deceit. Examine yourself, look for hypocrisy. Look for envy, look for slander. Undress it. Bring it out in the open. Confess it, renounce it, repent, seek forgiveness. That is a way of moving toward another willfully, even if it costs you. You understand? That's a way of loving Earnestly. And I think the connection here between the first passage, 22 through 25, chapter 1, and 1 through 3 of chapter 2, is that spiritual growth, spiritual flourishing, hinges on this. The spiritual, 
not only as you have, of, of an, as an individual, but as us, of us as a church. So in the coming days, today, coming days, weeks, maybe just do some self-assessment. Is, you see ways in which these things have shown up in your life? Now, let me give you a help here. Don't look for them all, all at once. I think, I think we, we did that book, um, what did we do for prayer week called uh, uh, Respectable Sins, yeah. And, and somebody came up to me and goes, man, I have them all. <laughs> They're all my problem. So don't get overwhelmed. Just, Lord, is there any way in which malice shows up in my life? And read through the scripture, look for word pictures, look for examples, look for stories that might bring those things out. And when they're there, then lay them before the Lord. Maybe take them to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and confess them there. And just renounce those things and make effort, not just to renounce them, but to replace them. So if, if you find yourself, man, I have been filling my mind with wickedness, then not just stop that, but, but actually replace that with something else that would bring honor to God. Fill your mind with godliness and righteousness and holiness, right? You watch and see what happens in your spiritual life. You see whether or not God is true to his word. Next week, we'll talk about what is it that is actually spiritually nourishing. What is the milk that we're to crave so we can grow spiritually? And we'll continue in 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, for those who are Following the Lord and Believer's Baptism today, I'd like to invite you to head down to Helder Hall to get ready. We're going to pray together, and then Andrew will lead us in our hymn. Would you stand together? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're always true to your word. We know that you are good and that you are God and that there's none like you. I pray, oh God, that you'll help us today to seek genuine spiritual nourishment, not, not malnourished, O oh God, but spiritually nourished for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, um, that we may grow up in this salvation that we have come to know as we've obeyed the truth, having been born again by the word of God. May you be pleased to honor your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name and together all God's children said. Amen. Let's sing together.